I'm going to ask if you would stand, and together we're going to read this passage that we've been digging into from John chapter 15. It's, uh, I believe, printed on your notes. It'll be on the screen. Of course, if you have your own text, you can read it out of that. And if the words are a little bit different, that's fine. But let's read together John 15, verses 1 through 8, and then we're going to jump down and read verse 16. Will you read aloud with me, please? I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And out of verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. Amen. You may be seated. So we've been uh, working through these verses slowly, drilling down deeply, because I believe there's some important truths here that we don't often spend time considering. And we've seen uh, from the get-go of this series that uh, a relationship with Jesus Christ, being a follower of Jesus, a Christian, is an active endeavor. That means that as disciples of Christ, God intends that we would be bearing fruit. Being a follower of Jesus isn't simply about coming to church a day a week. It's, it's not simply about fire insurance so that we know that one day we'll see Jesus face to face. Those things perhaps go along with it. But when it comes right down to it, being a disciple of Jesus Christ is about bearing fruit. And Jesus spends a lot of time in this teaching talking about that fruit and, and what it looks like. And he doesn't dodge the reality that there's people who will say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, who never have any intention of bearing fruit. Or will go through a season where they were bearing fruit and then something happened and they stop bearing fruit. And, and Jesus doesn't dodge that reality. As a matter of fact, he kind of hits, hits it head on. And, and he, he says that his father's goal, the, the gardener or the vine dresser being our heavenly father, his goal is to help us bear fruit. And when we're not bearing fruit, there's steps that he takes. There's things that the gardener does that our heavenly father does. And if we're not bearing fruit because there's something in our life that would block the life-giving nutrients of remaining connected to Jesus, if there's sin in our life, sins of, of commission, we're doing things that we know we shouldn't be doing, or there's things of omission, we're not doing things that we know we ought to be doing, that is also sin. 
if there's sin in our lives. Jesus says that the, the gardener comes and his, and his first step is to, to pick us up and to clean us off. And, uh, and, and we, we talked a little bit about that from verse 2. And, and if that doesn't work, if the, if the Father's correction doesn't get us back on course, then we looked at the, the various steps that he takes to discipline us so that we will come back into conformity with his will. And we're not going to rehash those. If you want to go back and listen, that was June 10th and June 24th, and you can find those on the website. There's sometimes, though, when the Father's work isn't about sin in our lives. It's not about the fact that there's no fruit, that something has blocked it, but rather the Father's work in our life is, is focused on, on the sense that there is fruit, and the Father's pleased but there could be more fruit. He knows who we are. He's created each of us, and and he knows the good work he has for us. And so sometimes his work isn't discipline, but it's pruning. It's removing the good so that we can get to the better. It's cutting cutting out or cutting off the things in our lives that are keeping more sap from flowing, not because it's sin, not because he's not pleased with us, but because we could be more focused. There's more things there's more, more sap that could flow through our lives to bear more fruit. And the tricky part is that both disciplining this, this, you know, God's actions when there's no fruit in our lives and pruning God's work in our lives when there is fruit, but he knows there could be more, both of those things are painful. Discipline and pruning in our lives often feel the same. They, they hurt and they're hard and, and it sometimes feels like God's doing things to us that, that no person should have to endure. We're walking through things that no one should have to face. And, and that doesn't necessarily mean that every hard thing we face is God's discipline or pruning, right? I mean, if your teenager is choosing to rebel and do things that they know aren't wrong, that doesn't necessarily mean that God caused that so that he could prune you. If, uh, if things at work are starting to fall apart and business is going downhill and you don't get along with your supervisor or the, the people who work for you, just are, you know, it's just something has happened and it's not right and it's a dark season and, and, uh, or at home with your relationships or in the neighborhood or, or, or at church, we don't necessarily look and go, something bad's happening. God must be pruning me. God doesn't cause evil. But Scripture teaches time and time again that when those times come, when things get difficult, when the, when the evil of other men and women is inflicted upon our lives, in those times, God can work and does work for the good of those who love him. Romans 8, 28, we know that in all things, God works together for the good of those who loved him and have been called according to his purpose. And, and James 1, 2 through 4, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials and hardships of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you can be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And, and this is all over Scripture. Both prescriptively and descriptively, God is constantly at work in the hard times, pruning us and growing us if we will allow him to. But because they both come in difficult seasons, both pruning and discipline, it can be hard to know. Is this difficult season because God is not pleased with me? Or is it because he is pleased and wants to see more fruit? Is he correcting me or is he growing me? What's, I, I, don't, I don't know how to do this. And we talked some about that last week, but, 
but it's hard to see in the hypothetical the difference between discipline and pruning. So what I'd like to do today is I'd like to look at the life of one of the great men from Scripture who endured constant pruning from the Lord for, for about two decades, constant pruning in his life. Because God saw that there's fruit here. I'm pleased with this young man, but there's so much more that I want to accomplish through his life. And so I'm going to remove things. I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to continue to cultivate this young man until he is who I want him to be. We're going to look at Genesis 37. That's where we're going to start today. If you have your scriptures, go ahead and find that. Or there's a Bible in the pew in front of you. Genesis chapter 37. Chances are, you've, uh, if you've been around church, you've heard of this, this guy, this character, Joseph. Uh, his story makes up the better half of the last, uh, you know, better part of the last half of the book of Genesis. And uh, Joseph's life is crucial to the story of the Hebrew people. Not the only one that was crucial, but certainly without Joseph and his willingness to be part of what God was doing in his life, Scripture, the story of the people of faith, would have looked much different. Genesis chapter 37, I'm going to start reading at verse 2. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Now, Jacob, also known as Israel in Scripture, was Joseph's son. He was also Abraham's grandson, okay? So we'll kind of place him here in the lineage of faith. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now, Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he'd been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated Joseph and could not speak a kind word to him. And so here we're just entering into Joseph's story, and we already see these layers of dysfunction. I mean, we've read four verses, and there's so much dysfunction here. It's, it's hard to imagine. There's favoritism. Joseph was favored by his father so much that there's hatred. His other brothers won't talk to him. Uh, there's, there's what we might call blended family dynamics, although not exactly like we would think of blended family dynamics. So Jacob has two wives, and uh, when, when the family growth plan isn't going quite the way that they had hoped, uh, each, of their wi- each of his wives says, here, take my, take my female servant and, and let's grow our family through them. So there's like four moms and a whole rash of kids and, and some were loved more than others because of who the mom was. Just a mess. And uh, sibling rivalry and, and all kinds of things. And I I suppose on some level, if we're to be honest, we can all relate to family dysfunction on some level. Or am I the only one? My family had a reunion yesterday, and so it's fresh in my mind. We've all all got some dysfunction. I was there, so I know there was dysfunction there. I had a professor in college who used to say something like, uh, the question isn't dysfunction or no dysfunction. The question is which dysfunction is the best dysfunction with which to be dysfunctioned, right? I mean, like... We've all got this stuff. And if it's not in your family, praise God, but you could probably look around and say, there's just some messed up stuff. And, uh, you know, for the follower of Jesus Christ, I suppose we focus on the sense that sometimes we inherit issues that aren't our own doing. 
literally sometimes things in our lives we didn't cause. Joseph didn't cause Jacob to favor him. Joseph didn't produce this family dysfunction, but it was part of his life. And so if God was going to grow him into the man that he needed him to be, some of that dysfunction was going to have to be removed. And sometimes God's pruning in our lives isn't necessarily about us or anything we've done or not done. It's just where we find ourselves. And God says it's time to address that so that you can be who I've called you to be. And as we look at Joseph's family story, at this point in the story, for three generations, God's been trying to remove. He's been trying to prune some of this dysfunction from the family. And and I think we're kind of at the point now where God's decided, all right, either go big or go home. Um, (laughs) Right here, this is the generation that's going to be different. Verse 5, Joseph had a dream. And when he told his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him. And he said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the matter in mind. I don't know, I honestly don't know what to make of Joseph's actions here. And and I'm sure you could talk to to two different preachers and get three different answers. I don't know if Joseph's done anything wrong at this point. I struggle to see that in the text. I think he's unwise. I think he could have better discerned how to share this dream and and when to share it, and with whom to share it. I I certainly think that as a 17-year-old, he was probably a little awestruck with what he saw, trying to understand it. But I don't know that he's sinning in anything he's doing here. And so what we're going to start to see happen in his life probably isn't God correcting him. It's probably God saying, there's some things that I need to prune so that you will fix your eyes on me, so that we can bear fruit, you can bear fruit the way I want you to. Verse 12, now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel, Jacob, said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, Joseph replied. So Jacob sent his son Joseph and said, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. And then jump down to verse 17. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. But as the story goes on, one of the older brothers, Reuben, steps up and says, that's silly. We're not going to kill him. Let's just throw him in this empty well. And uh, and the, the writer tells us that Reuben intended to later come back and rescue Joseph and take him home to his father. Verse 23, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty 
there was no water in it. And so now we're, beginning, we're going to begin to see how throughout the next 20 years or so of Joseph's life, Joseph's life, God prunes him and he begins to draw things out of Joseph's life, perhaps on which Joseph had been relying and shouldn't have been, or which would stand in the way of the life-giving nutrients that God had for Joseph. And we talked about the first two last week, possessions. Uh, We see that as soon as his brothers attack him, they take this coat, this coat that had become a focal point, a point of jealousy between Joseph and his brothers, and, and, and they took it from him. And last week we said sometimes God removes from our lives things because we've grown to appreciate the gift more than we have the giver. We've come to rely more on, on what that stuff is than on the one who gave it to us. And so God removes it from our lives. And, and we see that there's some physical pruning that goes on. They, they threw him in the cistern, in this, this empty well, we might say. Dark and scary, no doubt. And again, last week, we, we talked about the, the times in life when God strikes at the core of our body, at our physical well-being. And how in those times, God would long that we would be still. That, that because everything in our lives is shaken up and, and, and sometimes to the core and we wonder if we're going to make it, that, it, that it's in those times God would say especially be still and know that I am God. It is in stillness and quiet you hear my voice. We uh, didn't necessarily talk about uh, this other way that we see God pruning Joseph last week when we introduced this. Um, but we see God pruning Joseph in the area of position. Um, Specifically, I mean in the relationships with those around him. Verse 26, Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. And then jump down to verse 36. The Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. And so clearly there's some change of relationship, of position. He's he's no longer younger brother. He's no longer favored son. Now he's uh, simply a slave being sold to uh, a ranking official in Egypt. And, and I got to say, if I'm, if I'm Joseph, and, and maybe this is only me, but if I'm Joseph, I'm going, God, what in the world are you doing to me? Why would you do this? My brothers attack me and throw me in a well, and then they sell me to, to, to slave traders, and, and now I'm you know, shackled hands and feet and, and being drugged behind camels to Egypt. And, and uh, I, if I'm Joseph, I'm going, I don't get it, God. I've tried to be faithful. I've done everything I've known to do. Why would you do this? And we have the sense that Joseph hasn't done anything wrong. And yet God's pruning him. God sees a level of fruitness that Joseph can attain if there's some things from his life that will be removed. And it hurts. And I don't know if we can even imagine how much Joseph is hurting, but there's something great that's going to come out of it. 
So just think about it for a minute. What would have happened at this point? He's been sold into slavery. Potiphar buys him, and he's a slave in Potiphar's household. What, what would have happened if Joseph gave up and said, you know what, whatever. When in Egypt, do as the Egyptians do. What if he would have turned his back on Yahweh, on the God of his father and grandfather and great-grandfather? Can you imagine? Without Joseph, the story of Exodus doesn't happen. There is no salvation for God's people. There is no promised land fulfillment. But Joseph didn't give up. God prunes us, beloved, because he has a plan for our lives. And we, don't, we seldom see that plan. It's just like when I talked to Kim at the door today, I, I shared with him what I shared with you before I started preaching about the impact he had on Nate's life. And Kim was just standing there going, are you serious? His mom really thinks that? I feel like I could have done so much more. Man, I guess you just never know the impact you have on someone's life. We don't always see what God has in store for us. When it gets difficult, don't give up. When life is dark and overwhelming, and you don't understand why this is happening to you, don't walk away. Don't stop putting yourself around other Christians. That's the time to go deeper, to hold on tighter, to scrape away the dirt so you can make sure you're standing solidly on the rock. Don't give up. Don't give in. Because it hurts now, but there's coming a day. I promise you, Scripture promises you, there's coming a day when you'll look back and go, that hurt, and I didn't like it, and I kind of wish I didn't have to endure it, but if that got me here, praise God, because I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. Don't give up. Don't look back. Trust God. The beautiful thing about pruning is that it's not all painful. You see, God prunes us so there'll be more fruit in our lives, and and oftentimes in the pruning process, God allows us to taste of that fruit. And that's what happens here with, with Joseph. He went through a season where he, he got to, to experience some of the goodness of God working in his life. We're in chapter 39. I'm going to start reading in verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. And he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became Potiphar's attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care with Joseph in charge. He did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. And so Joseph begins to see some of this work, some of this pain is bearing fruit and, and God is rewarding him through it. But, uh, but it's not all uphill. God soon returns to pruning, this time we may say in the area of his profession. Notice verse 6. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. 
With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. And I would, I would suggest we be careful how we read verses 8 and 9. I don't think this is some kind of prideful arrogance on Joseph's part. He's not puffing out his chest and strutting around like a rooster. He's just acknowledging that by God's grace, he's been given a lot of responsibility and there's no way that he can squander that by doing something so wrong and displeasing to God. And uh, still Joseph hasn't done anything wrong. And we would expect enough is enough, God. This is great. Look at, the, look at what he's attained and, and can't the pruning be done? But... But God says, no, even in your work, there's something that needs to be pruned. And so the story continues in verse 11. One day he went to the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. Potiphar's wife caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house. She called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. Men, this pruning of uh, profession is incredibly difficult for us, especially, because we place so much identity on who we are, of who we are, on what we do. And yet even there, God sometimes prunes us. And it's hard to know, am I, am I here for a reason? Am I here for a purpose? Is this really the work I'm supposed to be doing? And if you believe God has called you to the place where you're working, if you prayed about it and sought advice about it and it seemed like God opened the doors, even if it's going south, trust God that he has a plan, that he's up to something. He also prunes him in the area of people. And I think, I think this is one of the sharpest tools that God uses in our lives. Because even the, the, those of us who are the most introverted, we still know the value of relationships and of people in our lives. And when they turn on us, when they badmouth us, when they lie about us, when they manipulate us, when they, when they do things that lead to our pain, it's difficult. And it's so easy to forget that the struggle, that our struggle, isn't against flesh and blood. It's not against the people in our lives who would turn their back on us, but, uh, but there's something going on in the spiritual realm. There's something happening that we can't see and understand. Verse 19, when his master heard the story, his wife told him, uh, saying, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. Joseph's master took Joseph and placed him in the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Again, another area where God pruned Joseph was, was the area of place. And, and we've talked about this before. Sometimes God moves us from one place to another. Sometimes it is in regards to our profession. Sometimes it's at school and, and uh, the class and the teacher that we wanted isn't available. And so we're placed in another and, and uh, we have a choice. Do we, do we grow mad and angry that we didn't get this class we want? Or do we trust that God's going to do something with this teacher in this class at, at this time? And it, I mean, it happens in all parts of our lives. It happens at work. It happens in, in, a, in our family. It happens in our neighborhood. God moves us. It happens in churches. God moves people from church to church sometimes. And, 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 um, and a lot of times it hurts. And sometimes when God moves us, it's him pruning us. 
Sometimes it's him pruning other people. I think, of, I think of Paul and John Mark in the New Testament. They were on a missionary journey together. John Mark left in the middle of the journey, and clearly God needed to, to call some maturity in John Mark's life, but God was also pruning Paul through that because he needed to lighten up and, and soften up and become easier to work with. And, and, and so there's this sense that even when God moves us from place to place, he's pruning us. And sometimes God says, no, stay. You're not to leave yet. I know you want to, I know it would be easier. I know it would be less painful, but I need you to stay because I'm working in your life. And if you run away now, my work will be short-circuited. Stay where you're at. Let's just look at one more area in Joseph's life that, that needs some pruning, and that's in the area of his plans. If, uh, if people are the sharpest and most painful tool that God uses to prune us, I think plans is the one that probably causes the most disillusionment to us. Because when God starts messing with our plans, it becomes clear that we don't have what we think we have, control. And when we finally realize there's nothing that we can do to change this, no matter how hard we work, no matter how specific our plan is, no matter how much sleep we lose over, what we're going to do, when we lose sight of the, the fact that a man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps, we're in for some pruning. And so Joseph's in prison. And he's there for a while, like he did in Potiphar's house. He rises through the ranks, and, and let's call him an assistant warden now. And one day, there's two new prisoners, and they're put under his responsibility. And, and these two prisoners had been key leaders in Pharaoh's cabinet. Uh, one is the baker, and one is the cup bearer. And these two are in jail. They get to know Joseph. One night, they, have a, they each have a dream. They have a different dream, but they each have a dream, and, and they can't understand it. So they bring it to Joseph, and Joseph says, I don't know what it means, but God does. Let's pray about it. And so sure enough, they pray about it. God gives Joseph the interpretation of the dreams. He says to the cupbearer, hey man, things look good for you. In three days, you're going back. You're going to serve Pharaoh again. To the baker, nice knowing you, bud. On um, three days, your head's going to be cut off. You're going to be impaled on a stake and the birds are going to eat your flesh. Thanks for staying in hotel prison. <laughs> and, uh, and, and sure enough, Joseph was right. And so he says to the cupbearer, at the end of chapter 40, verse 23, or before verse 23, he says, will you remember me? When you go back to Pharaoh, tell him about me. Tell my story to him. Tell him how I'm here unfairly, how I've done nothing wrong and shouldn't be here. Tell him that I've been faithful in all my duties and everywhere I've landed, I've risen to the top because God's hand is on me. And the cupbearer says, you got it, man, I will. 40, verse 23, the chief cupbearer, however did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. And 41.1, when two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. Now again, can you imagine for two years after Joseph hatched this plan to get out of jail, he sits there, no hope. There's no DNA evidence coming that's going to exonerate him. There's no chance for an appeal. There's no plea agreement. There's no escape. He wouldn't escape anyway. And he sits there day after day, week after week, month after month, proving himself faithful, trusting God, 
that something is happening that he doesn't understand. Two years later, Pharaoh has a dream. Long story short, the cupbearer goes, oh yeah, there was this guy. Pharaoh brings Joseph before him, tells him the dream. Joseph says, I don't know, but God does. Let's pray about it. They pray about it. Joseph interprets the dream. Again, it doesn't look good. There's going to be seven great years of, of grain. There's going to be seven horrible years. And oh, king, if I may, it's not my place, but, but if I may, here's what I'd suggest. Appoint someone to, uh, to stockpile the grain during the seven years and so that during the, the seven horrible years, Egypt won't go under. And Pharaoh said, yeah, sounds good to me. 4141, so Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Pharaoh, you're no longer a 17-year-old hated by your brothers Hebrew in some land up north. You are now the chief of state over all of Egypt. And here's my signet ring, and let's put it on yours, and if you say it, it's law. You have full authority throughout the land. The only authority that you don't have over me, over the land, is the throne on which I sit, Pharaoh says. And everywhere Joseph went, the people in the land bowed down to him because of who he'd become. And he went through these cycles from younger brother to favored son to slave to chief of household to prisoner to assistant warden to chief of state over all of Egypt because he was willing to let God prune him. Let's just draw out a few truths here and then we're done. God's pruning prepares us to step into more significant roles. God prunes us because there's more significant work to be done. If we'll let him do it, it'll happen. You don't go from a, uh, from a younger brother to chief of state overnight. Joseph had to grow into it, and there's no way he could have grown into being chief of state of a foreign nation without God's pruning. God's pruning prepares us to handle more extensive responsibilities. I mean, think about it. Joseph started managing sheep, and then he managed a household, and then he managed a prison, and then he managed a nation. That's quite the career arc, but God's pruning prepares us to do that. And God's pruning prepares us to handle major tests with godly responses. Notice through the whole story of Joseph, and we skipped over parts, you can go read parts, but you won't find a single verse where Joseph responded poorly to something that had happened. His brothers betrayed him. He didn't call down curses on them. Potiphar's wife lied about him and, and ultimately sent him to prison. Not once did he seek vengeance. The chief, the chief cupbearer forgets about him. Not once do we hear that Joseph became angry and, and wrote nasty letters to the editor or you know, had some, some ranting tweet that, that everybody read about his anger. Not once. No vengeance. Nothing. As a matter of fact, just the opposite. This is what he did do as, as his story comes to an end. Chapter 45, verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Kind of sounds like Christ on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Don't be angry for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. 
For two years now, there's been famine in the land, and for the next five years, there'll be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance so then it was not you who sent me here. Catch this. This is Holy Spirit inspired. This isn't Joseph trying to butter up his brothers. It was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of this entire household and ruler You know, it's not often that we can have that kind of clarity. At least not me, maybe you, but rarely do I have the kind of clarity to say to someone who's cut me to the core, don't be mad at yourself. God was doing some stuff in me. God had a greater plan. And, you know, it's not really your fault you're such a jerk. Oh, I mean, Joseph didn't say that. It's not often we can have that much clarity. And yet Joseph did he realized when he looked back over his life that God was doing something. And beloved, when you realize God is working in you, when you realize that through this pain, God is up to something, you have some choices. You can rebel. You can say, I'm done. I'm walking away. I'm quitting. If this is what Christianity is about, it's not for me. I'm not going there. I thought God was loving and kind. Doesn't seem very loving and kind. I'm out of here. You can resist, you know, not quit and walk away, but but not really cooperate with, God, with what God's doing, fight it, make, only makes the hurt worse, or you can rest. As hard as it is, as painful as it is, you can let God do it. Continue to be faithful. Continue to do what you know you ought to do. Don't do the wrong you know you shouldn't do. Gather around yourself some believers who can strengthen you and support you and help you. Read scripture, pray, come to church. Listen to your your radio preaching. Listen to your podcast. Do what you need to do, but rest and let God accomplish what he wants to accomplish. And it's difficult and it's hard and it hurts. But if you let God prune from your life, if you let him direct your path, and take from your life what ought not be there or what's keeping you from bearing the fruit he wants you to bear, you will look back and marvel at what God has done in you and through you. I'm going to ask if you'd uh, bow and pray with me as we close, please. Heavenly Father, this has been a a difficult passage to unpack. These verses from John 15 that that at first read-through seem to be uh, chipper and happy and and, uh, another one of the parables that Jesus told. And as we've dug in, Father, we've seen that it's not always chipper and happy, that that the hard truth is that so many times in our life we're not bearing the fruit that you would have us to bear. So Father, we thank you that in those times and those seasons that we have a loving heavenly Father who seeks to restore us, who seeks to work with us, who doesn't throw his hands up and walk away, 
but who lovingly and skillfully and with great care prunes us so that we can bear fruit as he wants us to bear. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here, some of whom are in a season where it hurts. I didn't see it coming. It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. And it's not because you're displeased with them. Would you please help them to rest in the palm of their Heavenly Father, to trust you. Help them to be still and to listen. And Father, would you help them to taste some of the fruit that uh, that you're bearing in their lives? Would you give them a peek, just a just, just, just a short glimpse of what you're up to, about how their life might impact someone else's. Would your Holy Spirit sustain them, strengthen them, so that they can continue to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it's actually God who's working in them to accomplish his good. Father, we thank you. We pray all this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you please stand and let's bless one another before we're dismissed. Uh, We'll bless one another by me pronouncing the blessing when I'm done. If you'd say it also to you as brothers and sisters in Christ, co-heirs, we'll bless one another. May you rest while God is pruning you. May you have a taste of the fruit that he has for you. And may the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit give you peace. Amen. You are loved. Go with grace.